Jodie Whittaker made history on July 16th, 2017, when she was announced as the new Doctor Who, the first woman to play the role. It had been a long-standing tradition, well, since 1981 anyway, when Tom Baker first suggested it, that the next person to play the part could be a woman. The idea was mooted again when Peter Davison left in 1984, and again following Colin Baker's departure in 1986. But for whatever reason, it took 37 years for it to actually happen. The announcement, when it did happen, was a big deal, appearing as a 30-second specially shot TV spot at the end of the Wimbledon final, prime time on BBC One. It would nevertheless be over a year before we could see Whittaker's first full episode, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, on October 7th, 2018. As of this recording, Whittaker has just completed her tenure, regenerating into the next Doctor on the 23rd of October 2022, a period of nearly five years, if we include the regeneration story, but only 31 episodes. And it may be too early to take the 30-foot view of her run just yet. Certainly, there were periods of ups and downs, as there are with any Doctor, but Whittaker's run is too fresh and recent for a full-on analysis of events. If we learn anything from Doctor Who, it's that time ultimately reveals all its secrets. One thing we can look back on is Whittaker herself. From start to finish, Whittaker was a magnificent ambassador for the show, rarely appearing in public without a smile on her face and a spring in her step. Her convention and talk show appearances have been a whirlwind of joy as she's reveled in every moment, enjoying every single second that the Doctor was her. Her performances have likewise been akin to a popped balloon of fizz, bubbling over with excitement. Her expressive face, childlike demeanour and mile-a-minute delivery evoked earlier incarnations like David Tennant, whilst her freewheeling nature, friendly approach, plus her relative youth and light-coloured costume reminded me of Peter Davison. Whittaker's era, though, was plagued with budgetary concerns and a worldwide pandemic. You may have noticed it. Series runs were cut from 12 episodes and a Christmas Day special from the last Doctor's series to 10 episodes and a festive special, which now heard on New Year's Day. Fans reacted badly to this, as fans are wont to do, but there really isn't a lot of difference other than the day that it heard. The specials weren't specifically Christmas-focused anymore, but they still felt like a holiday episode. The series itself was hit harder. There was a full year's gap between her first and second series, a nine-month gap between series two and the festive special, and then her third series was hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and cut from ten episodes to six, which resulted in another gap, this time of 11 months. However, these delays meant Whittaker's final episode would err in the year of the BBC centenary, and to celebrate and perhaps acknowledge the place the series has in the BBC's marketing plan, an extra special was asked for. Whittaker's final three specials erred in 2022, and the first of these, the topic of tonight's episode, was Eve of the Daleks, transmitting on the 1st of January 2022. This episode missed a trick by not being called New Year's Eve of the Daleks, 
It was written by showrunner and executive producer Chris Chibnall and directed by Annetta Laufer. Eve of the Daleks opens in the most untraditional way for Doctor Who. The delightful and hilarious Ashling B plays Sarah, press-ganged into working on New Year's Eve. Again. We're led to believe this is a regular occurrence. She's working at her storage unit, festively named Elf's. We're later told an S has fallen off the sign. Her only customer, Nick, played by Ajani Salmon, is dropping off a Monopoly board, which is obviously just an excuse to see Sarah, who he is clearly crushing on. This opening scene rattles along. The dialogue is fast and funny, and even a little poignant as we realise why Nick is really here. It's aided immeasurably by Ashling B's performance. Mammy, it's four minutes to midnight every year. Why are you calling me now? The lines will all be busy at midnight. No, they won't, because it's not 1973. I was still at work. New Year's Eve is the best time to meet a man. Not trying to I meet your me. father on New Year's Eve. You did not. January 9th, same thing. It's literally not the same thing, Mummy. Anyways, who says I even want to meet a man? And, and the only reason I'm working tonight is because I had to keep on stupid Jeff at the stupid place that I inherited from your stupid uncle. Obviously, no offence, God rest his soul. Your uncle Benny was a saint. Oh. Listen, ma'am, I have to go. I've got a customer. So, yeah, just call me the bongs, will you? The lines will all be busy. No, they won't. I don't uh... like calling on the Primarily a stand-up comic, B also has mile-a-minute delivery, and her quick wit has landed her regular shots on many comedy shows, such as Would I Lie to You and 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, where she regularly steals the show. She pretty much does that here. Her line delivery and facial expressions raise a smile, and the back and forth between her and Nick lulls us in. She's wonderfully acerbic, making it quite clear she'd rather be out having fun than being stuck here at work. Chibnall gets a lot of flack in certain quarters, but this is a lovely opening and makes us like these characters immediately. Which makes it quite shocking when our two big-name guest stars are killed before the opening titles by a Dalek. Okay, it's not that much of a shock. The Dalek is mentioned in the title of the episode, so its appearance is pretty much a foregone conclusion. And it's also a Doctor Who tradition that the Daleks will be mentioned in the title of the episode, but not actually make an appearance until the end of episode one, if it's a multi-parter, or be given a shock reveal. And we all go, oh no, it's a Dalek, like we didn't know the Daleks were going to be in a show that is called Of the Daleks. And even with this quite sizable clue, the other's festive specials from the past few years have all featured Daleks as well. So there's another reason this isn't Quite the big reveal, they're playing it as being. It still works, though. Sarah and Nick don't know what a Dalek is, and the shock is palpable, as it would be if you were suddenly killed. Even more impressive if you're suddenly alive again. There's an especially good gag here when the Dalek says, I am not Nick. This draws a wry smile from anyone who knows that the actor playing the Daleks is actor-writer Nicholas Briggs. We could ponder why Sarah and Nick don't know what the Daleks are, given they've invaded Earth ooh, quite a few times now, but I'm sure there's been some wibbly-wobbly time-related event that explains all this at some point, and I've just forgot it. Much like they have with the Daleks. 
Else when, and also before the opening titles, the Doctor and her newest companions Yaz, played by Mandip Gill, and Dan, played by another stand-up comic, John Bishop, are fiddling with the TARDIS, flushing out the remnants of the Flux. This is continuity from the most recent series, and we needn't concern ourselves with it now. The TARDIS is, suffice to say, all fluxed up. I'm here all week. Team TARDIS can't stay inside whilst the TARDIS is flushing and are planning on holidaying on the beaches of San Munrova. As usual, the TARDIS has other ideas, dumping them instead in Manchester, somewhere the Scouse Dan would rather not be. This was a lovely little touch, nodding to the long-standing rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester. The Daleks' arrival is a shock to the Doctor, who clearly hasn't checked the title of the episode, and despite the TARDIS cloister bells ringing aloud for Christmas Day. The Doctor has been warned that her end was coming in a recent series, but this being the Doctor, she's probably just ignoring it. Even more of a shock! The Doctor, Dan and Yaz are exterminated. And cue the music. Kinola's rendition there of the famous Doctor Who theme, which never really grew on me. Always sounds like you're listening to it underwater. Anyway, coming in at nearly ten minutes, I think this is the longest pre-credit sequence in Who history, if we obviously ignore the episodes that didn't even have credits. It's a good hook for your show to kill your characters before the story even begins. This was done to great effect in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Cause and Effect, but that was pre-Groundhog Day, and even your granny is now aware enough of time travel shenanigans to know right off the bat this is probably a time loop episode. Show enough, it is a time loop episode, and we come back after the credits to everyone still alive. The Doctor instantly knows it's a time loop episode, because she is the Doctor, and Chris Chibnall is a smart enough writer to know that we know it's a time loop episode, and this means we don't have to bother with all that tedious faffing about with exposition and can just get on with the story. Well, for six more minutes anyway, until everyone ends up dead again. The Doctor quickly figures out that the time loop shortens on each reset, bringing them back a minute later, dropping from seven minutes to six, then five, etc., adding a ticking clock to the proceedings. The Doctor, Yaz, Dan, Nick and Sarah can't just leave the storage facility because the Daleks have put a force shield around it. For reasons that I don't know were ever adequately explained. Even with this, what follows is a genuinely entertaining 50 minutes of television. The base under siege motif is one of Doctor Who's most tried and trusted formulas. And it's tried and true for a reason. Done well, it works. The confined locations allow for socially distant filming in a way that doesn't look like it's allowing for socially distant filming, and it's shot exceptionally well by Laufer. If there's one element of the Whittaker era that has been consistently well done, it's the look of the show, which has been increasingly cinematic and lush. 
I'd argue that Who has looked better in recent years than shows like She-Hulk or Obi-Wan, both of which have Disney money behind them. Again, Chibnall negates some of his criticism here. Eve of the Daleks is tightly structured and features some excellent and often very funny dialogue. And it's not every day Doctor Who does a Dalek-infused rom-com. The TARDIS fan, being ever so concerned that Nick has storage lockers full of ex-girlfriend's property, leads to a genuinely funny exchange as Yaz asks if they are all still alive. Let's be honest, it's a fur question. Despite Sarah and Rick's spikiness, they do come across as a sweet couple, who do seem quite right for each other. But as with Lois Lane, Sarah can't see the man in front of her. As she herself notes, good-hearted weirdos are actually the keepers. Now, one can argue this is yet another nerdy, borderline stalkery bloke trying to woo a girl, potentially out of his league, who succeeds due to stressful circumstances. See also the previous festive special, Revolution of the Dalek, which isn't its actual title, but it may as well be. But Nick comes across more of a doofus to me than a stalker. He's too kind-hearted to really want to stuff and mount Sarah and keep her in his storage unit. Well, he may want to mount her, but that's a completely separate thing, and Doctor Who is still a family show. Largely, this relationship, though, is saved by Ashling B., whose every utterance is infused with her inherent comedic sensibilities, although it does highlight that, of the two stand-ups in this episode, one's a better actor than another. Now, this may be a tad unfair. B is given the better lines and delivers them more naturally, which leads me to think, was it scripted this way or did she simply reinterpret the lines in her own way? Because every eye roll, every quizzical expression, every aside is comedy gold and she easily emerges as probably the episode's MVP. Which isn't to say Whitaker is short-changed. A mere two episodes away from leaving, Whitaker is on top form, leaning into her doctor's natural arrogance and smart mouth to save the day. Whitaker's doctor has been characterised by a quick wit, a natural warmth, and no short of emotional unawareness, especially where Yaz is concerned. This is where Chibnall leads into the small subsection of the fandom dub Thasmin, and the idea that, as with all modern-day Who companions, Yaz has to be in love with the doctor. Now, I have to confess, I preferred it when none of them loved our wandering Time Lord, but I also accept that this is modern TV, and in that modern TV era, it's rather expected. No one can deny that the relationship between the Doctor and Rose played a pivotal part in the huge success of its comeback. Dan points out to Yaz that she's in love with the Doctor, and that is actually one of John Bishop's better moments. But one, again, can't help but think the Doctor may have known for some time. Certainly Chibnall's been hinting at it since the episode Arachnids in the UK, way back in Whitaker's first series. The look Yaz gives the Doctor when Sarah delivers the aforementioned line, good-hearted weirdos are actually the keepers, is laden with subtext. Sadly, it doesn't really seem like Chibnall has thought this out. And I wonder if it was always the plan, or came about due to fan pressure, or simply the way the actors played it. Yaz is one of the longest-serving companions, in a sense of she's the only actor to go all the way through from the beginning to the end with the Doctor. And I shouldn't have to qualify this by saying I'm not counting Big Finish, 
and I'm not counting novels, and I'm not counting the Brigadier, and yes, Jamie almost makes the grade as well. And, yes, there's Rose, who is there for Christopher Eccleston's first episode, and Christopher Eccleston's last episode, but that's technically only one... Well, it's not technically, it is only one season. And besides, the Eccleston-Tenant era almost feels like it's just one run of the show. The fact that it starts with a different Doctor is just another aspect of bringing it back and showing a new audience that regeneration is a thing. So I'm not really counting Rose, although I will give you that that is one of those push your spectacles up your nose and go, well, actually, I think you're fine, Rose, Tyler, and I would concede that one. But there are enough I think you'll find types out there to argue the toss with me. Yaz is the only actor to appear in her Doctor's first episode and her Doctor's last episode over an extended period of time. So that means I am also not counting the Paul McGann movie. Okay? Okay. Now, given this lengthy tenure, we don't really know anything about her sexuality. And maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that shouldn't be a driving force behind someone's character. But it's kind of semi-important here because we don't know. Is this the first time she's had feelings for a woman or someone who presents herself? as a woman, as the Doctor does in this case, then that may explain why she's been so reticent with what she's feeling. But we don't know that. We don't know if she's had boyfriends. We don't know if she's had previous girlfriends. We know nothing about that aspect of her character. Her mum, in the aforementioned episode Arachnids in the UK, seemed to know right away because, well, she's her mum. Mums always know. But this character trait has largely been unexplored. Eve of the Daleks, though, is paced very, very well. It doesn't feel the extra 15 minutes that's tagged onto it because its running time is as special. It's fast-paced and exciting and features pretty fun character beats and performances. The Doctor even manages to make somebody's life better. It also provides me with an opportunity to address some of the main complaints of this era, namely that it's too woke now or too PC. These complaints are actually incorrect. The show is no more politically motivated now than ever. It's actually less concerned with political and environmental concerns than it was in the John Pertwee era from 1970 to 1974. That era featured a political dimension to pretty much every single story. Likewise, both the previous showrunners, be it Russell T. Davis or Stephen Moffat, had stories that were ripped from the headlines, more so than the Chibnall era ever did. Yes, some episodes have had subtext that became text, but it's always been that way. Star Trek The Next Generation had an episode symbiosis that stops for a minute, allowing Tasha Yar to lecture us, the audience, on the evils of drugs. There's an old episode of The Saint where Roger Moore literally delivers a piece to camera about how the Nazi ideology is bad. This is no more or no less than just carry on the long-standing tradition of television drama, be it science fiction or not, of addressing what's in the air at the moment. There are also people who'd like to sound the cloister bells that the Chibnall Whittaker era was the death knell of the show. In 2021, Doctor Who was the seventh most streamed show on BBC iPlayer in the UK. The BBC say Doctor Who was streamed 41.8 million times. 
In 2022, this number was up to 56 million streams, with Doctor Who being the single most watched box set on the player, beating even Peaky Blinders. These figures aren't just for the current series. Every episode since 2005 is currently available. But it does suggest the important place the BBC still sees in Doctor Who. And iPlayer is important. Waterloo Road, a school-based drama series, ended its run in 2015, but proved so popular on iPlayer, 46 million streams in 2021, that it was recommissioned for a new series for 2023. Relying purely on the overnights nowadays doesn't tell the whole story. Yes, it would be nice to have a breakdown. Which episodes, which eras, which seasons, which Doctors are getting these viewers? But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Doctor Who is long-tail programming. It's getting these figures. Does it really matter who the Doctor is? The show's not dead. The show still has legs. All that being said, there has been a dip in overnight ratings this year. And some of those are problems with the series. Certainly the gaps and the smaller number of episodes hasn't helped, but there have been other issues. The Doctor has frequently felt like a passive observer in her own show. There were too many companions on occasion, and off-time stories were fine, but not great. The good ones were very, very good, but the mediocre ones seemed to rise in number. So yes, the 30-foot view may as yet be too far out of reach. We'll only really be able to fully dissect this era in a few years. But Jodie Whittaker was the Doctor. She counted. It'll be interesting to see what she does next. As for Doctor Who, well, the temptation is to say, who knows? But we failed to do this the last five times, and this time we've even less time. What makes you think that this is going to work? Because something seems impossible. We try. It doesn't work. We try again. We learn. We improve. We fail again. But better. We make friends. We learn to trust. We help each other. We get it wrong again. We improve together. Then ultimately succeed. Because this is what being alive is. And it's better than the alternative. I don't know if you've been anywhere. You could have been anywhere. Anywhere, everywhere, all at once. Or you could have been nowhere. Nowhere, nothing, all at once. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? Should we look at the emails? Couldn't believe you actually emailed in. For which, many thanks. Our first email. Rob McCarthy. Exhuming McCarthy. Meet me at the book burning. Hey, Andy. Hey, Rob. You know Time's Arrow is second rate, because when you see Mark Twain in a time travel story, it means Hitler and JFK said no. Do you have to ask them permission? <laughs> I love the idea that you have to ask the estate of Adolf Hitler permission 
to put him in your time travel story. Do you think Quentin Tarantino wrote a, a well-mannered letter? Dear state of Adolf Hitler, can I put Adolf in one of my films, please? And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, put him in a, in a Quentin Tarantino movie. That'd be great for his image. And then he gets shot to bits. <laughs> oh, dear me. And we did laugh at the inappropriateness of it all, because inappropriate humour is the best humour. Uh, Steve Ramsden's emailed in. Hey, Andy. Hello, Steve. Long time listener. First time emailer. My favourite of them, because it always makes me think I'm Frasier. I'm Dr. Frasier Crane, and I'm listening. Just going through your back catalogue for Palace of Glittering Delights, which he's abbreviated to Pogd, which I quite like. Pogd. But it sounds a bit too much like pegged. <laughs> I don't think we want to go there. And did you any fi- ever, sorry, finish off your look at Spartacus? Perhaps this episode didn't fit your usual profile of sci-fi and fantasy, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. No, we did not. Me and the missus never went back and completed our look at Spartacus. But Stephen S. D. Knight, late of Buffy and Smallville and the showrunner and executive producer of the Spartacus series, has recently announced that they are returning to the Spartacus well to do a sequel slash parallel slash further story, whatever, in the Spartacus universe. Now, whether that's just going to be a story about Rome, because those that watch Spartacus will know that the series ended with Spartacus's death. So I don't know that Spartacus is going to be in it, but it did end with Caesar as a young man. So presumably they could they could follow through on that and have a look at the follow Caesar. I mean, I don't know if you'd still call it Spartacus, but as, as long as it still has the Shakespearean levels of drama and intrigue, the requisite violence that we came to know and love, and the gratuitous sex and nudity, I am there for it. And Angela keeps making rumblings about wanting to watch Spartacus again. Because it is great. You know, it's got all those great things. The sex, the nudity, the violence. But it, it's also got great characters, great dialogue. We still quote that show to each other. We still say gratitude and we are as one in that regard when we agree on stuff. So between the two of us, we do have like a, a Spartacus shorthand. And I would be interested to see what he comes up with. Because at least they've gone back to the original creator and said, oh, you want to do some more of this? Uh, and as long as he doesn't forget all those great things that made it great, then uh, I'm all for it. You know, I don't mind a booby show. I don't mind a show that has a high penis count. And Spartacus had both. <laughs> so, you know. In fact, it ruined television for me because I was kind of like, other shows didn't have anywhere near as much nudity. So you'd be watching something perfectly innocuous like Coronation Street going, why don't they take their clothes off as much as they do in Spartacus? And I don't know if there's anyone who wants to see that. I don't think anyone wants to see Ken Barlow with no clothes on. But it amused me. <clears throat> and let's be honest, this entire endeavour is here to amuse me. But I am very delighted and gratified when uh, somebody else comes along for the ride, like your good self. Irrespective of a Spartacus sequel, Steve continues, I will listen to your output, which remains as brilliant as ever. That's my expanding ego. Loved having Michael back on the show for Christmas. Maybe consider making this an annual event. Well, Michael, as of this recording, 21st of February 2023, he has finished The Next Generation. He texted me just this morning 
to tell me his thoughts on all good things. Which I think is the best Star Trek final episode. I'm not going to spoil it for what Michael thought. Uh, and he has talked about, can we get together and wrap up The Next Generation? Maybe when he's done the movies. Um, I don't think we'll wait until he gets to Picard. Because obviously he's got to go through Voyager and Deep Space Nine. He's up to the end of Season 2 of Deep Space Nine at this point, I think. Uh, he's got to get through all of that, you know, before he gets to, to Picard. So we may get together and wrap up The Next Generation. Because we hadn't... He hadn't seen any of season seven, had he? So if we wait till he's seen the films, maybe we'll get together, crack open a few beers, and uh, and talk about season seven and next gen. So that that's that would be an excellent excuse to bring him in and get him on Palace again, hopefully before next Christmas, when we'll do our annual Hey Kids. Oh, and I'm glad you're ending episodes once again with everything will be okay. The world needs as much positivity as it can get in these hard times. Cheers, Steve from Bolton. You are very welcome. I'm waving at you because Bolton is just down the road. Hey, Bolton, just down the road. It's really weird. No, that's that's not Bolton. That, that's old, isn't it? Anyway, it doesn't really matter, does it? Bolton's not that far from me, so I wave in your general direction. And it's lovely to hear from you. We will. Try, I'll have a word with her and see if I can get her to... I mean, it probably won't be much of a chore to get her to watch Spartacus again. But... Um, Getting her behind a microphone is hard work. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. But we'll we'll give it a go. And you're very welcome. Gratitude for that email. Um, thank you very much. Uh, Matt Prather has also emailed in. So a couple of you must have listened to my plaintive cries. Please email. I'm all alone. There's only me and a microphone. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Matt. Enjoyed the walk through Star Trek. Good. I'm glad you did. Having a Hey Kids Comics Christmas episode followed by a two-parter covering a good portion of my favourite Trek was awesome fun. Spent a good portion of the time I was listening agreeing to your gentle guidance to the best Trek has to offer. Mostly allowed at work, like a lunatic. Fun episodes all round. Well, that's that's lovely. And I thank you very much for that. The Bionic Man by Kevin Smith was a trade I picked up for cheap and enjoyed thoroughly. Some of Smith's writing peccadillos are on full display, but enjoyable nevertheless. Overall, I usually enjoy Smith and his output, some other than others, and I'm interested in looking at some of his publishing label. Thanks for everything, Matt Frather. You are very welcome, Matt. I didn't know Kevin Smith had a publishing label. Does he not do stuff through Oni or Dynamite or something anymore? Or does he have his his own... What's his name? Oh, OK. That's, that's fair enough. All right. My next is not an email. It is actually a really thoughtful and excellent text message from Daniel Dickholtz. Uh, let me just... Just listen to your latest episode about Dynamite's adaptation of Kevin Smith's adaptation of The Six Million Dollar Man, a.k.a. The Bionic Man. A fine job. And I actually haven't read that Dynamite series, though I did read one of the later unrelated ones. But I did read Kevin Smith's screenplay years ago and speak to him about the unproduced film for a still forthcoming, forthcoming sorry, project of my own. Well, Daniel, when that forthcoming project is no longer forth, and it's just coming, maybe I could have rephrased that better, uh, let us know, because I will point people in your general direction, and would very much look forward to listening to that as well, because I love The Six Million Dollar Man, and the original novel, Cyborg, and all various iterations thereof. Except maybe that Bionic Woman TV series from 2007. So, a few points, continues Daniel. 
He did read Cyborg, but didn't care much for the style, which he found to be somewhat dated. He's not wrong, to be fair. But his focus was very much on the TV show, and he wanted to work in little nods to the series throughout his script, up to and including Steve Austin ducking behind a conveniently placed boulder. Yeah, very good. The train scene is definitely from his script. In some ways, it functions like an update of the school bus scene in the original novel and TV pilot. But it struck me as the sort of thing I'd want to see in a Superman movie. And it just so happens, he then went to work on Superman Lives. Writing unproduced screenplay seems to be quite lucrative, doesn't it? I wonder if I could get that gig. It's like not appearing in Batman films. Number three, he wanted to change the title to The Bionic Man right from the get-go, since inflation has rendered the original title ridiculous. However, he was told that it had to be called The Six Million Dollar Man because that was the property's title. So in the script, he justified it with Project Six Million, and it cost six million a day to keep Steve up and running. That's true. That was in the comic. I don't know if I mentioned it in the episode. Number four, there was always a rights issue with the project. Smith had met with TV's Oscar Goldman, Richard Anderson, not the guy who's in Stargate, who had gotten rights to the series and it was he who hired Smith. They then brought it as a fate complete to Universal, who was somewhat disgruntled. Five, I know somebody who back in his days worked at Universal and was one of the people who passed on the Smith version. He wasn't crazy about it and felt that the bad guy also being bionic made Steve less special. That's an excellent point. Actually, I hadn't considered that because, well, you come to this with a certain amount of baggage. I know the story. I know the series. I know there's another bionic man out there in the form of Barney Hiller. Um, so, yeah, maybe this guy's right. He also said that Universal at that time wanted to make a Tom Clancy-ish techno thriller rather than an ode to the more outré elements of the show. The irony is that this guy is and always has been a huge comic book fan. Oh, man. After he left the movie biz, he went into comic retailing and owns a couple of successful stores out in Los Angeles and the surrounding area. How he didn't get that some of the comic bookiness of the series was what made it so endearing was and which was built into Smith's script, I don't know. I do wonder, though, what he must have thought when issues of The Bionic Man arrived from the distributor and into his store. <laughs> that is excellent. That was brilliant. Uh, thank you very much for that, Daniel. That was awesome. That was some excellent information. Uh, it's another one of those. I do these in a vacuum and I will explain to you the really scientific procedure that goes into picking what I talk about next. I go, oh, this looks fun. And if I read it and or watch it and it is fun and I feel I have something to say about it that hasn't maybe been said before or certainly in a way that has not been said before, I'll do a show about it. That's it. I don't have a long list of things I want to cover on this show. This isn't like Hey Kids used to be, where I had a book of comics and miniseries and annuals and spin-offs and everything else that me and Michael wanted to cover. This is literally seat of your pants. I just, I read those comics, I dug those comics out of my long box. I don't know why, I was just in the mood for them. And I dug them out of my long box and I read them all and thought, you know, this would make a good show. I haven't done many Six Million Dollar Man shows. I think I've done about three Overall, I know I did one when DC Fontana died on her two episodes, which are really good. And I did one on Straight Until Morning. No, no, I did one on Population Zero, the first proper episode of the show. 
But I haven't done a lot of six million dollar man, even though I I love the show and I love the property and I love the binary woman as well. So maybe I will go back and revisit that at some point. So thank you, Daniel. That was a, that was fantastic. Uh, I'd like I say in a vacuum, if I'd known that the script was out there, I knew somebody tangentially at least on Facebook who had read that script before I did the show. I'd have reached out to you and said, oh, "Well, I mean, was this in the script? Was this in the script?" Etc. 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 As Yul Brynner once had it. Anyway, that's it. Those four lovely people were lovely enough to send me an email and then got to hear me read the lovely and intelligent words in my wittering northern accent. So I hope it wasn't too much of a downer for you on your otherwise fine day. We're going to wrap it up here next time. No idea. I haven't got a clue. I may do another Doctor Who as part of the 60th anniversary celebrations. Because uh, I've done three now, Spearhead from Space, Robot, and Jodie Whittaker. The only reason I didn't do Jodie Whittaker's debut episode, The Power not the power of the Doctor, The Woman Who Fell to Earth, was I've already covered it. I did an episode entirely devoted to Jodie's first season on the show. Uh, so you can go back and check that out if you want to hear what I thought of The Woman Who Fell to Earth. So I randomly picked a Jodie one. I didn't want to do her last episode because I kind of feel... That one will be taught to death because it's her last episode. And I just remembered really enjoying Eve of the Daleks. Not just because of Ashling B, who I don't in any way have a massive crush on. Um, but I thought, all right, well, I'll revisit that one. And if it still tickles me ivories, I'll do it on that. And thus it came to pass. So next time, I don't know what's what's on the cards, but we'll see. But that's part of the delights, isn't it? That's why it's a delight. You never know. It's really cosmopolitan, as they said in The Prisoner. You never know what you're going to get. It's all going to be okay, hopefully. Uh, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, or you can do what Daniel did. Send me a text message via uh, fast face place or the tweets, if the tweets are still happening. You know, if Elon's not charging you a fiver to send a text message. <laughs> he may do, I don't know and uh, I'll see you next time for more of this kind of thing if this kind of thing is what you like we'll leave with Sir Roger Moore taking some valuable airtime out of his own show to talk directly to the camera about the evils of Nazism Cuh, woke nonsense and I'll see you again real soon less than 20 years ago we won the war against Nazi terrorism and today the spectre is emerging again. It's the same shabby doctrine. Race hatred, survival of the fittest, brutal intimidation of the opposition. Oh, I've heard it before, and it sickens me.